This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Amen. I invite you all to have a seat and you open your Bible, if you have one with you this morning, to the book of Acts again in chapter 20. You'll find that in the Black Pew Bibles on page 929 if you care to use one of those. And Good morning to you all. Good morning to uh, those who may be somewhere else in the facility and those of you watching either from home or away. I want to remind you uh, that Acts chapter 20, where we were last week, records how the exalted Lord Jesus uh, safeguarded his church through his chosen instrument. The Apostle Paul, a man whom Jesus had powerfully transformed. And we summed up this ministry of safeguarding the church as consisting of three main ingredients, at least from chapter 20. Uh, and we summed, up, <clears throat> summed them up this way, that uh, encouraging, exemplifying, and exhorting. And so we looked at all three of those and Blue high as we looked at the entire chapter, trying to see how the whole chapter holds together. And what I want to do this morning is return again to that second one and return to his exemplary life and ministry. So I like to read from verses 17 through 24 to remind us what the scripture says. <clears throat> Acts 20, 17. Now from Miletus, he, that would be Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is the word of God. Two proverbial statements. If you can guess which one was spoken by Paul. First one. He who dies with the most toys wins. Paul, anyone? <laughs> For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And by contrast between those two proverbial statements, we learn that what you live for is way more important than what you have. 
And what you live for is way more important than what fills your closets and your drawers and your garage, your bank account. What Paul lived for and how he lived for it was a model for the Ephesian elders. That's what he's appealing to. It was an exemplary life and ministry. It was so by the grace of God in his life. And last week when we looked at his exemplary safeguard, I reduced, I reduced it down to four primary qualities. And this is what they were. His consistent lifestyle, verse 18. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. His Christ-like attitude, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. His genuine love, verse 19 again, serving the Lord with tears. And he mentions those tears again in verse 31, even though it was in the midst of suffering. And lastly, the fourth quality was his faithful teaching ministry. Verses 20 and 21 and 27. Faithful in its content in various ways. Faithful in its comprehensiveness. Uh, we looked at that last week. And I want to offer you this morning three further qualities of his exemplary ministry. Uh, I think they're embedded in what we covered, but we were moving fast last week. And I wanted to extract these and spend more time meditating on them with you. <clears throat> and I offer you these three this morning. Three further qualities of his exemplary ministry. First of all, his submission to God's leading, verses 22 and 23. And his prioritization of God's calling, verse 24. Those two we'll cover this morning. And the third one, which I won't get to today, is his confidence in God and his word. Verse 32. I didn't read that far this morning. These first two this morning, his submission to God's leading and his prioritization of God's calling. And I, I return to these because they're personally very helpful for me. They speak to me, first of all, very, very challenging. They're soul-searching. They're deeply humbling. They're profoundly powerful and deeply sanctifying. I come back to them like a moth going to the light, knowing I'm going to get scorched again, you know. But it is healing and um, transforming. And so I wanted to come back to them. They seem even almost heroic, I would put it that way, when I think of what Paul was going through when he lived like this compared to what, to what I go through, what you go through. But I want to say this, that while these qualities are in part what I'm calling uh, an exemplary ministry, they are spiritual qualities that God desires and aims to produce. He aims to produce by His Spirit and His Word in every Christian. They make not only an exemplary ministry, but they make for an exemplary Christian life. And so I could ask you rhetorically this morning, do you want to live a Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting, exemplary, Christian life. Well, if you do, what would God aim to do in your life? What would he aim to produce in your life? Well, at the very least, these three, submission 
to his leading. <laughs> Prioritization of his calling and confidence in him and his word. And so as you listen to these, don't uh, tune out thinking that's for apostles with capital A's and pastors like Tony and the other elders. What he describes is an exemplary Christian life here as well. So this morning, these first two. First of all, his submission to God's calling in his life and in his ministry. Verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Jerusalem was God, the Holy Spirit's plan for Paul, as it was for Jesus, the Son of God. Paul says he is constrained by the Spirit. He is bound, literally is what the word means. But it's, uh, what's, it's a figurative expression, of course. What he's talking about is a sense of divine constraint in his life, in his heart, that tells him, you aren't going to the left or the right. You're going to Jerusalem. You need to go there. It implies an, uh, an inner conviction that he had reached some time ago and still possesses the the grammar of the verb there, the form is a perfect participle. And so this was a conviction he reached some time ago. I have been constrained and I remain constrained by the Holy Spirit that I'm to go to Jerusalem even though it involves suffering. And we see where this began back in chapter 19. You may remember in verse 21, uh, after the events of the miracles that God did through healing people with Paul's handkerchiefs. <laughs> and then the great revival that took place, remember that, but before the riot, but after that, verse 21, it says, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. I mentioned back then that some think it's thus his Spirit, but I think it's correct here that he resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. He resolved in the Spirit. And that verb resolve it implies that Paul had a desire that he laid, that he set, that they may they placed before God to see if it was from the Spirit. And he came to the resolution. He came to the conclusion that this impetus to go to a dark place came from God, that it was from the Holy Spirit. Um, Alexander McLaren, he says that he was compelled by a restraint felt to be irresistible. Irresistible because it was a restraint from the Spirit of God in his life, you see. Now you think, oh, how, how did that come about in Paul's life? Well, we know that in sometimes uh, God could just speak to Paul. He did. <laughs> Other times maybe it would be through a prophet. But again, because of this resolution back in chapter 19, I think it implies a, pray a prayerful process in which he concluded that this was the case. That's where God's taken me. Like Jesus, who set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing the cross awaited him. The point is this, not how Paul came about to this conclusion. What's the point? That where the Spirit led Paul, he went. He submitted. 
even when he was told and knew ahead of time that where it was going to end was painful. In, this, in the book of Acts, we have seen the ministry and the person of the third person of the Holy Trinity, the, the Spirit of God. And we have been introduced to him as the Spirit of mission and the Spirit of power for the mission. Way back, Acts 1.8, right? You will receive power from on high when the Spirit comes upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses, you see, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So we have met the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, as the Spirit of the mission, the, the Spirit who empowers the mission. He's also the Spirit who directs the affairs of the Church of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit, we were told, who explicitly sent Philip to evangelize the Ethiopian. It was the Holy Spirit, we were told directly, who sent or spoke to Peter to go to the Gentile, Cornelius, and open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. It was the Holy Spirit who said, set apart from me your best, Barnabas and Saul, to the work to which I've called them. He is the one who directed and chose the first missionaries out of the church of Antioch. And it was the Holy Spirit who has been guiding Paul in his life and ministry. And that was underscored, it was underscored in chapter 16. Remember what happened there? Chapter 16, verse 6 and 7, Paul had a desire. There we go again. He had a desire, a plan in his mind to go and preach the gospel in Asia, which would be Ephesus. But we're told there, the Spirit forbade Paul. The Spirit of God said, no, not now, not Asia. Pervade him to preach in Asia. And so in the book of Acts, the Spirit is, is actively doing all these things. He is directing the mission. And the point is that Paul submits to the leading of the Spirit in his life and his ministry in the mission. And even when there was a divine interruption to a well-laid plan, a righteous plan, I'm sure, because it came from Paul's heart, a good plan. I want to preach the gospel in Asia. No one's been there. Nevertheless, a divine interruption took place, and Paul said, well, I'll follow where he, where he leads me. His desires were the same. His passions remained the same. The principles that guided his life were the same, but he responds to the Holy Spirit's providential redirections. I like to think of him sometimes as maybe biting his lips because <laughs> he's human <laughs> like me, like you, but nevertheless, he accepts God's guidance in his life. The question is, do you? Do you, do we follow where the Spirit of God leads us, where God leads us? even when it's a redirection. As I've quoted before, C.S. Lewis set to music years ago by the Christian artist Phil Kage, disappointment, his appointment, change one letter, and then I see that the thwarting of my purpose was God's better plan for me. Disappointment or his appointment? Well, Paul went where the Spirit of 
Jesus led him. I have something to tell you. Maybe it's be surprising to some of you. The spirit of Jesus is still leading the mission. <laughs> he is still leading the mission. We are not capital A apostles. I understand that. We are not laying the foundation for the church. That was some 2,000 years ago. But you and I, if we are genuine Christians, living as we are in the 21st century, because God is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever, we are no less, maybe in different ways, but we are no less as Christians led by the Spirit. I understand that's a phrase that some of us from some of our backgrounds have a problem saying out loud. Because the what? Because of the excesses, excesses of some of the of the more charismatic Pentecostal movements and so forth. And we think to say the spirit led me may mean just simply emotions or, you know, there was some sort of experience. But Paul would say, and he would already written Romans when the, he was experienced Acts 20. He said, those who are led by the spirit are sons of God. <laughs> And you, so if you wipe it off the table completely, then you'd say, well, then what makes you a Christian? Because for Paul, one of the elements of a, that defines a Christian is that we're led by the Spirit now, rather than by the flesh. Romans 8, 13 and 14, Paul put it this way. He said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you mortify sin, you say, he says, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Yeah. So there you have it. We are led by the Spirit. We're meant to be led by the Spirit. But because of the excesses of emotionalism and other sort of, of, of I would say, wrong understandings, the real question is, how are we led by the Spirit? How does the Spirit of Jesus lead us today? That is really the question. Well, we're told here that the Spirit of God leads us as sons of God in moral matters. In the, he leads us to conquer sin. By the Spirit of God, we are to be putting to death the deeds of the body. The Spirit leads us in this, in this moral battle of sanctification to conquer sin in our lives. He leads us in decision-making in our life. How? By illuminating the meaning of Scripture, granting us wisdom from truth, from the Bible. He is also the Spirit of truth. And Jesus said He will lead you in all, to all truth. He leads us in that sense. He leads us in another sense. He leads us in good works in the Christian life. How? By producing the fruit that comes from the new energy that he has in our lives. The fruit of joy and peace and love and patience and self-control. That is, that is the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he leads us in ministry, your ministry life. How? Because he is the one who has gifted you with spiritual capacities, which we call spiritual gifts, that he has given to each believer, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. So he's leading us. He's leading us in these ways and others. And so the point is this, that however it is that Paul was led by the Spirit, and so we'll set aside. Did he hear something? Was it a problem? Let's set that aside. However it was he was led by the Spirit, he followed. He submitted. He said yes, even when he saw that this road leads 
to great difficulty. That's what's exemplary about it. And if it meant changing the course of plans he had laid, he was ready to do so, you know. You know, I know that times we yearn for very direct guidance from God. You ever done that? We yearn for very direct guidance from God in very specific personal matters, right? Like, go, stay, here, there, buy, sell, him, her, right? We, d- we yearn for direct guidance from God in very, very personal matters. But at the end of the day, the real question is, we who desire God to lead us, are we yielding to the Spirit where He has already provided absolutely clear guidance? Such as what? Such as walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. Walk in love. How so? Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. And so as those chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, self-control. If anyone has a complaint against anyone, just as Christ forgave you, Forgive him or her. Oh, the Spirit's leading. He's leading all the time. And before we ask, which way are we listening to his voice already? <laughs> it's there that he, he guides you with clarity. It takes time. It takes time, but you need to be a listener. And so the point there, again, is... What made this ministry of Paul exemplary was his yieldedness, his joyful yieldedness to the Spirit's leading in his life. Even when it meant darkness, clearly, knowing ahead of time what awaits you in Jerusalem. And why did he do it? So why did he go on? Because of verse 24. His prioritization of God's call in his life. That's why. That's why he did it. Verse 24. Look down at it. I know of no greater. There may be equal. But no greater verse in my life in terms of its power when it comes to accountability to our callings. Here's what Paul says. Soul searching. I do not account my life of any value, nor precious to myself. When Paul says that, he's not saying that he, he don't think any human life has value. That's not what he means. What he's saying is that he does not set the value of his own life ahead of Christ's call in his life. That's what he means. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What was his ministry? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, Paul knew that the journey to Jerusalem would end in darkness. Uh, 
He didn't know exactly what would happen, but he says the Holy Spirit tells me everywhere I go that nothing but chains or imprisonment and suffering is what awaiting me. Do you know that the Spirit of God leads you and me, but he does, his aim is not primarily to lead you and me to a pay, place that is free of trouble. God is not so concerned with leading you and me to a place that is pain-free, a place of security, ease, comfort. But he aims to lead you and me to a place of transformation, to make us like Christ, to extend his mission, to extend the gospel, to prepare you for eternity. Psalm 23, we know, says that the Lord's a good shepherd, leads us beside quiet waters. He's speaking there of the stability of your heart and soul in the midst of difficulty. Why? Because even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, places of danger, Jerusalem, he will not fear. You should not fear because he's with you. So he leads And he tells Paul ahead of time, this is where you're going. And he went because he valued the call of Christ in his life and remaining true to the faith more than he valued his own life. One commentator put it, he went, he would yield because, and I quote, he valued Jesus, listen to this, he valued Jesus above comfort and even his own life. He was willing to go. His desire was to finish the ministry Jesus gave him. And for Paul, nothing mattered more than this. Nothing. And years later, he would write to his... to his protege, Timothy. And it's good to see, well, how did it end with Paul? Here he tells us he wants to finish that course. And that word course in Acts 20 means a foot race and fulfill the ministry that God had given him. How did it end for him? And he writes to his protege in his last letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy in chapter 4. This is what Paul says. Let's glance ahead at what happens. He says that Timothy, he warns him, he says, listen, um, there's going to be people who are, don't want to listen to the truth anymore. They're going to wander off. And he says, as for you, 2 Timothy 4, 5 is where I'm at. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those are the words of Acts 20. Fulfill your ministry. And then he lets us know and lets Timothy know, where are you at, Paul? He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. My life is coming to the end. And the time of my departure has come. How'd it go, Paul? I have fought the good fight, he says. I have finished the race, the foot race. I've finished it. I have kept the faith, he says. So for Paul, life and ministry was a foot race on one level. This is a a metaphor, a metaphor. A way of speaking, a way of describing, right? It's a race, but it's not a race against other Christians, against other people, you know. (laughs) None of that. (laughs) It's a race, a marathon race. It's a race against 
that which would take you off the path of faith, the race against our, 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 our enemies, our mutual enemies, the world, the devil, and our flesh. The race of endurance to keep the faith, he said. No matter what's coming at me on the road, I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. Timothy, you know, he, um, he is that example to me which is becoming more important in my life at this stage of my life. He's that example to me of finishing well. Man, I pray for that all the time now. <laughs> Let me finish well. I know so many guys just land in la-la land at the end, you know. How'd that happen? Let me fight the good fight. Let me stay in it, you know. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he had already written this to them. He had already begun using this metaphor in his mind as he taught the churches. 1 Corinthians 9, he says, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. You know, run so that you win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's going on now. They don't eat certain things, right? They exercise so much. They, you know, they measure by the ounce everything, what they drink. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive what? A perishable wreath, you know, this little garland with, you know, ivy on it. But we, an imperishable. And so he says, so I do not run aimlessly, like some guy who doesn't know where the course is, you know, like running up and down hills and over left and right. You know, five years later, he's back where he started. You know. He says, I don't run aimlessly. He goes. And then he mixes the, the metaphors. I do not box as someone beating the air, you know. Paul landed punches. <laughs> but not against anyone. Against his own flesh is what he's focusing on here. But I discipline my body. That body which says, hey, throw in the towel, man. How many more whippings are you going to endure where you give up on the juice? Huh? How many more? He didn't give in to the flesh. He disciplined the flesh. He says, and I keep it under control. But there's a picture there of what? This is not perfection. What's the picture of here? This is a, a man yielded to the Spirit's influence in his life and there is the, the struggle of progressive sanctification. But he says, I'm disciplined. I want to run the race. I want to finish the race. And we saw that he did. Praise God for that. He is an example for that, for us. But also fulfill his ministry, fulfill his task, not just keep the faith. And again, McLaren says, he knew that his Lord had set him a task. And the one thing needful was to accomplish that. Do your job. Fulfill your calling. That's what Paul did. And for him, that was more important than even staying alive, right? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Did you know you are in a race? Do you realize you're running a marathon? We learned this in the book of Hebrews, right? It's a long race, a race to keep faith in Christ and to hold on to that vision of the eternal reward and say no to passing pleasures of sin that would get in the way, that would steal your joy, that would destroy your testimony, to say no to that, the passing pleasures like Moses. Why? 
because he considered the reproach of Christ to be greater riches and treasures than anything he could receive in Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You're in a race, beloved. Are we prioritizing God's calling in our lives to keep the faith in this race and what? Fulfill our ministries. Fulfill your callings. Paul had a calling. It was a calling of an apostle. Yes, I know. Don't sidestep it. He had a calling which was a, a specific calling to be an apostle of Christ in the first century. But, but you and I are also called. We're called of God. What's your calling? What's our callings? You know, it was, it was in the Protestant Reformation that there was a great and very helpful recovery of the biblical doctrine of vocation. A vocation of calling. That, 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 that vocation did not refer simply only to what monks were doing, but that God calls every Christian to a worthwhile life where we can just as much as a monk glorify God by fulfilling our callings, our vocations. And the fun, we, have, we, the, we have been called out of something and into something. All of us have, along with Paul, the same initial, initial foundational calling, which is what? We have been called out of darkness to light, out of sin to the Son of God. We have been called to serve God as our Lord and as our Savior. Your specific job description may look different after that point. But the foundation of all our callings is the same. We have been called into Christ to serve Him by glorifying Him. How do we glorify Him? By showing that we treasure and prize Him above everything how do we glorify Him? In our sub-callings. Our sub-callings underneath that. Like what? Whatever your career calling is, whatever your, here are other callings. Being a mother is a calling. That's a vocation. Being a single in this world until such time that God may change that. But right now, that may be your calling. Being a father, husband, wife, employer, employee, and so forth. Listen to the foundational calling that belongs to all of us. That's where the root is. That's where it begins. Peter, the apostle, and I quote something I read last week, but it was for a different point. I make the different point this week. Peter in 1 Peter 2 writes to the scattered church facing greater persecution. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's what we emphasized last week, right? We are purchased. Purchased by the blood of the Lamb. But he, then he goes on, so that, here's the purpose, so that you, Christian, not just Paul, but so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you see. So like Paul, we've all been called out of darkness, called into a marvelous light, and we, our foundational purpose, our foundational calling is worship, glorifying God, testifying to His excellencies. How? By virtue of how we speak about Him and 
by virtue of how we live, because he goes on to exhort them to be careful how they live, to live as sojourners, live as aliens in this world, so that others may glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, we have been called foundationally, all of us, to proclaim and show the excellencies of God, that he is, he is greater than anything and anyone. Why? How? I mean, through how we live we show that He's our greatest treasure through how we submit to the Spirit's callings and directions of our lives. And then within this come those sub-callings that I just mentioned, right? We have callings in work, callings in family. We are citizens in the larger society. That's a calling. We are citizens of heaven. We have a calling in the church, right? We have gifts. Martin Luther, the, one of the foundational reformers on this topic, he, he, said, he said, calling is not so much what we do, but what God does through us. And then he said this interesting statement. Vocation is a mask of God about that what's that mean you say vocation is a mask of God what it means is that a mask is concealing he says God God the invisible God with his power and his will is working behind the scenes in your vocation to affect others for his glory moms that's a vocation, that's a calling. Your children may not see God, but behind that mask, you see, he is there. And through your vocation, he aims to shape the hearts and minds of your children. He aims, he aims to grant them an understanding of God, his own nature. This is true in other ways, you know. God is hiding behind the mask of vocations he's given us. And not only within the church, but God does this in his goodness, we're told, for all of creation. All good things come from where? From above, right? From the Father of lights. And so God is hiding behind the various vocations, skills, abilities he gives to human beings who are made in his image and he affects the lives of other people, primarily here through Christians, but even in just practical ways, he's touching the lives of other people. This was a recovery of the doctrine of vocation, the biblical understanding of calling, and it really gave dignity to everything. In fact, it was said, what he argued was, you know, God is working through you, and you could glorify God just as much as a milkmaid as a, as a monk. <laughs> Why? Because... Whatever it is you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God, you see. And so he has given you callings, beloved. You need to see these things as callings in your life. Callings in which God hides behind, if you would, to fulfill his will and do things, amazing things, in the lives of other people. And 
The author Gene Vaith in his book, God at Work, he says, he illustrates it by just a loaf of bread, you know, and to think about all the vocations of how, how he feeds you, right? He says, you go to the store and you buy a loaf of bread. Uh, where'd that loaf of bread come from, you say? You say, well, somebody delivered it. Yeah, but who made it for him? Well, the, well, the, the, the baker made it. Yeah, where'd the baker get his flour? Well, the, I don't know. He bought the flour. Where'd the guy who made the flour get the wheat? Well, he had to get it from the farmer. How to get, where'd the farmer get the seeds? And uh, we, he had to go buy it from someone. How, why did it grow? Because God sent the sun and sent the water, you see. Well, how did it get from the seed to, to my dinner table? Through all the various masks that God was hiding behind. Because he is the provider. You see. Give us this day our daily bread. You are in all that. You are in that scheme and whatever your vocations are. And Paul says, listen, what's foremost important to me is fulfilling my vocation. And so I urge you to think in that light, you see. What dignity is there in being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother? And maybe this will lift up. I'm only focusing for a moment on families. There's, there's other things to think about. Right now, I just want to focus on families. That what dignity there is and power when you see your calling as that and not as something that's getting in the way of your fun. God is at work. He's touching lives through your various callings. And fundamentally, you've been called to proclaim his excellence because of his mercy in your life. You know, it's, um, it's a strange time we, we live in. Our culture would say the exact opposite of everything I just said. <laughs> right? Well, I think Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. Only now we have internet and, and te- you know, screens and we have all kinds of ways to promote the lie. And it, it's really feeling more and more like a, a fish swimming upstream, isn't it? But what, P- what Paul says about his devotion and, what, and that he values that ahead of even his own life is not some new apostolic doctrine. For our Lord said the very same thing. In fact, there's deep, profound connections to what Jesus said, recorded in the Gospels, various places. But I would quote to you from Matthew 16, 24. It says there, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone. Okay, so stop. He is speaking to his disciples, but he, he, he widens it to include whom? You and me. If anyone, you, me, would come after me, let him, her, deny himself and take up his cross, which was a sure sign of death in their culture. Take up his cross and follow me. Die to self-centered thinking, planning, living, and follow me. Wow. That's what Paul says. I don't value my life ahead of fulfilling my, my calling. I'm, I'm picking up my cross. I'm following him. And I'm told by the Spirit it means going to Jerusalem. He tells me it's a dark tunnel I'm going into. But I go because I'm following Christ. 
what it is to be a Christian. And then Jesus gives a basis for it. He gives a reason for it. He says, for whoever would save his life, that is to say, if you are to save your eternal life, your life into eternity, you will lose it. That is, it will be a loss of your self-centered life here. But whoever loses his life, meaning now, setting aside your self-love, whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. Not only here now, but forever. Into the kingdom, into eternity. You see the logic of Jesus. And then he knows we say, yeah, but I don't know. I'm a, I'm a comparison shopper. I'm a comparison shopper. I, what do you mean by losing it and finding it? And so he goes on. He gives the most extreme illustration. He says, for, let's say this, he says, what would have profit a man, someone, if he gained a trillion dollars? No, no. What would have profit if you gained the whole world? What do you own? Earth. Everything. What would it profit if you gained the whole world, he says, but you forfeit your soul into, he means what? An eternity of God's wrath, damnation. Comparison shopper, he says. What do you think of that deal? Well, that's what Paul has in the forefront of his mind, you see. And for him, it does mean, it has to mean, if he's going to obey God where he was going to send him to Jerusalem, for him it means this, I must prize, I must value Jesus and fulfillment of the task he's given me more than I prize even my own life. That's where he went. Boy, our culture is the exact opposite. Self, self, self. Our culture just beats you down with telling you that the good life is the only this life and is based on material acquisition. He who dies with the most toys wins, you know. And if you're not careful later this afternoon, you're going to drink up a ton of commercials. That That's all they're saying. That's all they're saying to you. Which proverb are you going to live by? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Well, Paul was convinced of what we need to be convinced. that This is the only reasonable response to such a glorious salvation. It always begins there, doesn't it? Worship is response to a glorious, immeasurable gift. An inconceivable gift of salvation by grace through faith alone. And the only reasonable response to that is to give yourself to Christ, to trust Him till the end, to believe that it's better to follow Him than the lives of the world. And Paul, who had finished Romans, remember the winter before this, 
That winter of 56, 57, when he sat down there and, and dictated the letter to the Romans, he, he spoke of this glorious, inconceivably wonderful gift of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He did that through those very first eight chapters of the book of Romans and then defended it in chapters 9 through 11. He says that though we are sinners, every one of us, Jew and Gentile alike, and though we each of us deserve nothing but condemnation and the wrath of God, nevertheless God in his unconceivable grace and mercy is willing to justify us by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and credit to us the righteousness we need to be at peace with God forever you see and then after defending it for chapters 9 through 11 through to uh, regarding one question there he turns the corner to worship in chapter 12 verse 1 and you know this very well this is the life he's seeking to live this is how he describes it theologically in the context of worship which is response Paul says, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, meaning in light of all these things, brothers, by the mercies of God. Think about his, the extent of all he's done and loved, how he loves you. Even now, I appeal to you by the mercies of God in light of what his grace is towards you. Here's your, here's your response. Present your bodies, that is your very self, as a living sacrifice. Not a dead animal, but a life given to him every hour of the day. A living sacrifice, he says, holy and acceptable to God. Why? Because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so your life, with its stumbles and its Pitfalls and failures and foibles and <laughs> setbacks. Your life is acceptable and holy to him. Live it for him. Why? Because he has justified you by grace alone through faith alone. See? That's it. So live for him, he says. He says, this is your acceptable. Let her go, your worship. The only acceptable worship. How does it not read? It does not read. I appeal you to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God in light of His grace. Give God about an hour and 20 every Sunday. You know. No, give Him yourself. And trust that He'll make good for you and in you. Some of you, some of you are familiar with the book small little book that was written by Pastor John Piper some time ago, entitled, very simply, Don't Waste Your Life. Um, and he makes this one statement in there. See if you understand the implications. He says this. It's possible to waste your life. <laughs> what a simple statement. But it's true. It's possible to waste your life. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 will enter the kingdom of God. But him or her who not only said Lord to Jesus, but submitted to him, built his life, her life upon the rock, 
of Christ's merit. Not religion that leads to a life of progressive obedience and change within the security of belonging to the family. Yeah. It is possible to waste your life. And you know, one of the great American tragedies, or one of the great tragedies, I would say, American culture, which if you're not careful, you'll be bombarded again, I'll say, in this afternoon is that billions and billions of dollars are spent on convincing you and me that the happy life is related to what you have in your garage or in your closet versus who you live for. We live in a time when people are struggling to find identity even as human beings. You know that? That comes from what? Because of our rebellion against God who created us in His image. Male and female, He created them. But because we don't accept that, people are choosing their identity, struggling to find identity. Did you know, Christian, did you know, Christian, that not only do you have an identity as a human being created in the image of God, but in Christ you have an identity as a holy priesthood, a a chosen race, and you have gifts and callings. and you, In other words, you have purpose, a purpose greater than you. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, you say. You and me, of all people, should understand this. It's given to us, right? God has given you this. You've been given something worth living for and something worth building your life upon. I think Paul would make very clear to you and me what the Lord Jesus made clear to his disciples, what God is struggling to make clear to me, or I would rather say he doesn't struggle, (laughs) that I'm struggling to receive from him very clearly. And all of us wrestle with this, and that is what? That what we are to be living for is not a long life. Not a safe life. Not a life of security, ease, control. But we are to be living the full life, which is a God-fearing, Christ-exalting, joyful submission to His calling in our lives. That's it. Whatever you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever it is you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do you view, do you view manhood, womanhood as getting in the way of identity? Do you view being a parent as getting in the way of identity? Do you view being single at this point in your life as getting in the way of your identity, and, or what are your careers, what you do for a living? What do you look at it as, just a way to make a buck? Or are you seeing it as Paul sees? The mask, God's behind it. And his calling to you is to fulfill your vocation. Magnify his grace and his glory. Because we all failed to do that. Do you agree with me? Do you fail to do that? (laughs) Because we all fail 
to consistently be that joyfully yielded Romans 12.1 living sacrifice, we turn now to His sacrifice at the Lord's table. We come to reflect on His sacrifice. He was the only one truly yielded to the Father. And He will not push you away if you're a Christian. He has set the table. You are His guest. And you will sit down at this table today as you confess your sin to Him and speak your mind and heart to Him about your own struggles with this. You are a guest, well-dressed, because you're dressed with the righteousness of Christ. So let's thank God for he who yielded himself to the Spirit's will, which meant to go to Jerusalem to a cross where he would drink the dregs of the wrath of God for you and me. That you and I would be free. And Scott will lead us through the table. Let's pray and sing a song of praise before we come to the table.